Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Mark Raffan. He runs Negotiation Ninja. Today, we're going to explore why win-win is a lie. What is negotiation? What isn't it? When should you negotiate? Why should you negotiate? When should you not negotiate? What are the reasons why negotiation turns pear-shaped? We're going to dig into all of this. It's going to be a rough ride for most of you because um, we are going to be holding up the ugly mirror intentionally. And Mark has promised not to pull any punches. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. I appreciate it. Excellent. So would you mind giving us about 60 seconds on your history, please? Yeah, worked in sales and procurement my entire career. About five years ago, started a podcast called the Negotiations Ninja Podcast. It quickly turned into the Negotiations Ninja Training Company, and now we train sales and procurement teams all around the world how to negotiate and get better value from their deals. Okay, so let's start with the million-dollar question. Should you sell through uh, with procurement, to procurement, round procurement, or over and above them? I advise with as best you can, because if you leave it until the end, they're going to slaughter you, generally speaking. Usually, most people do in sales is they'll wait right until the end to engage procurement. This is a big mistake because you have not engaged them. They don't understand the value that you've already created. Naturally, what happens internally within the business is the business user throws over the fence their deal and says, hey, procurement, sort this deal out put a contract together, that would be great. Thank you so much. And naturally, because procurement has no idea what's going on, they have no idea what values all been, already been created for the business user, and they've never been a part of the story to begin with, they come in and try and get their pound of flesh. Can you blame them? I can't. So do it with okay. them from the beginning if you can. Okay. So in theory, that's great, but let's be honest about it. Most procurement people operate with a tactical hat on, not a strategic hat on. So how do you turn tactical buyers into strategic partners? This is a great question. So you were right. The There are a lot of procurement people that operate tactically and not strategically. It depends very much on the maturity of the team that you're working with and the maturity of the person that you're working with. And quite frankly, procurement people have a ton on their plate. So oftentimes they're forced to be in tactical positions and not strategic positions. And so what I ask is part of the discovery up front when I'm with the client to say, is there a procurement person that we should be engaging with from the beginning to ensure they're a part of this journey with us? I don't want to leave it till the end. So you need to leave, tell that to me now, because quite frankly, if we leave this to the end, the probability of it going off the rails is significantly higher. So we need to make sure we engage with them earlier. So we make it incumbent upon the business user to get that procurement person involved instead of us trying to reach out to them in the first place. Okay, so let's start with some language and definitions. So what is negotiation? Negotiation is the process by which you try and get to a deal that creates value for you. Now, I said that intentionally, for you. Because there are so many people, especially salespeople, unfortunately, that are people pleasers, that sometimes go to the extent of pleasing their customer so much that they sacrifice what they actually want to get out of the deal in order to get the deal itself. And then they view right. the outcome of the deal as success, which is a mistake. Before we pick this apart, then let's define what uh, pe most people define as win-win. So let's define the false win-win. Yeah. So most people believe, in my opinion, most people believe win-win as where both parties can come to an agreement where both parties get 50% of the deal, right? They get an equal share of whatever the value is outside of the deal. Okay. Interesting. And how would you define a true win-win? I don't think there is a true win-win. Okay. Okay. Well, let's agree to disagree on that. I think the the real skill in negotiation comes at being able to ensure both sides get their needs met and walk away happy and satisfied eventually without compromise. But in order to do that, you actually have to listen and take your time to find the common ground. Because most of the time, 
there is common ground there. But what we're doing is we're spending so much time trying to defend our turf or push our agenda that we make the other party uncomfortable. But yes. if, you're ta- if you're taking playing the longer game and you're spending time trying to understand, then you don't have to make those unilateral concessions because you've already understood well in advance what the other party is trying to get. Because in my experience, more often than not, when someone is asking for stuff in a negotiation, they don't really want that stuff. They're using it because they think it's leverage. Yeah, I would agree with you to a certain extent, but I think my and I think most of what you're saying aligns with what I believe in. The issue that I have is the language that's used around win-win. Okay. And so let's say, for example, we used your terminology to define what a win-win is. That's not really a win-win. You don't win in that, and I don't win in that. We would, I mean, technically that would be a draw. If you won and I won, that would be a draw. And no. so why not? <laughs> if, if both of us get our needs met, we both right. win. This is the difference between a finite and an infinite mindset. Finite mm. mindset believes in games having a beginning and an end, and you play to win or you play not to lose. An infinite mindset looks at the opportunity and thinks, how do we make the pie bigger and keep the game going so that all of us can benefit from it? In the world that I occupy, which is largely around ecosystems and partnering, I'm always looking first at how do I help my partner sell what they want to sell the most, and how do I sell help them sell more of that? before they sell my stuff. Because I know that if I can facilitate that, they'll want me to sell more of my stuff because by selling my stuff, they sell theirs. That's a win-win. And the customer wins as well because they get a better outcome. To my mind, that's how, I, that's how I'm defining it. But uh, again, it may be semantics, but I genuinely believe there is a win to be had if you're patient enough and you're looking for what you have in common and you're trying to build bridges instead of trying to fleece people. I appreciate what you're saying in terms of having both parties meet their needs and both parties meet their wants. But is that incumbent upon you or is that incumbent upon the counterparty? Like, is it incumbent upon me to find you a win or is it incumbent upon you to find your own win? If I want you to be my long-term customer, I believe that I have to look for the long-term win for both of us. And I play a game of long-term selfish, um, which is that and I'll give you some examples of this, and it it flies counter to everything that I was originally taught. I've realized now that I cannot give enough away because giving people the knowledge does not mean that they have the thinking behind it to be able to implement it successfully. So even if they try and steal my stuff, that's fine. Some of them will be able to run with it, but most of them have to come back for help. And I'm not really that fussed if I'm playing the medium-term pipeline. Because if I've got 60 accounts in total, that's my universe, and I need two of them in any given quarter to be paying me money, odds are I can take my sweet old time to work those accounts. And when the timing is right, I, if I've, covered, I've got the coverage, then um, I'm the person that they trust already. Now, maybe I'm being naive, but it seems to be paying off. And maybe for you, because you've been around maybe a lot longer and you understand some of the finer intricacies of how this works, that would work for you. In my experience, for a lot of people, especially those people who are newer to negotiation, it's naive of us to assume that the counterparty is going to look for your best interests as well as their best interests. And it's also naive to try and create a win for the counterparty at the expense of your own. So I'm cautious using the terminology win-win because I think it lulls people into a false sense of security around the rationality of people that they're negotiating with. Because in order for you to create that win-win, you have to believe that the counterparty is going to be rational. Again, I'm gonna challenge you on that, but I, I want to pick up on something you said and actually reinforce that I agree with you. It's not up to the other party to look for you, out for your best interests. However, if you understand 
partnering and you understand the whole principles around reciprocity. Now, reciprocity works both ways. If you if you stiff me, I'm going to find a way to get even. I may not do it directly, but I could throw a spanner in the works. I could make your, your project fail slowly. And none of that works to our advantage in the longer term. And I'm intrinsically lazy. So I don't want to have to go out and transact many times over with lots of new accounts. I would much rather expand those accounts. So I see my role. And again, yes, I have the advantage of uh, age and um, a network. But the thesis that I have at the moment is that so much energy is spent on trying to win cold new business. And if we invested more time in developing the relationship and negotiating more intimacy, negotiating more familiarity and more frequency of touch, then as they move from passive to active looking, most of the negotiating has already been done. My favorite type of negotiating is the stuff that happens before we get to the negotiation table. It's all the stuff that we've agreed so that by the time we get to the end, there are only two or three points of difference. Everything else has been checked off. And then we just find, you know, we've got to find out what that common ground is. Are those deal breakers? If they're not, yeah. then we can walk away. Um, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think it's naive to go in expecting the other party to look for your best interest. But you have to start the process of giving trust and that, I think, is something that a lot of negotiation doesn't allow you to do because most people go in and wing it. And the reason yes, you give trust is because you're really well prepared. I, I agree with you on most people wing it. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a couple of things that you said there, if I might dig into them a little bit further. Please, and disagree with me if you like. I'm, I know I'm not always right. Certainly. One thing you said was reciprocity. I think reciprocity is a fantastic thing for your personal life. But I think generally speaking, in business transactions, it's a very dangerous mindset to get into because sometimes people believe that if I give something, someone will give something back to me. And this is dangerous because you're making a massive assumption that someone's not just going to keep taking that value from you without you also making your giving contingent on getting something back. Maybe the finer point, and maybe you meant this as well, is maybe the finer point here is not to just give something away with the expectation that you might get something in the future, but also to give something away, making it contingent that you're going to get something back. Like if I said to you, I could do that for you if you can do X for me. Absolutely. And again, part of this process is about trying to find ways that both of you move towards an outcome that you can both live with and be happy with. Because at the end of the day, if I negotiate a deal and I'm unhappy with it, I will try and find a way to either get out of it or to do the minimum level of service. So again, I think a lot of people end up in the negotiation because they have not really done their planning, they haven't done their homework. And as a result, they end up leaving enormous, obscene amounts of money on the table. And so they have to go out and find more and more customers at lower and lower margins. So let's talk about the importance of preparation and practice, because I think on that we're, uh, we are agreed. I, I would always recommend for every hour you're in front of the customer, you need three hours of preparation. I'd say that's a very good rule of thumb. The more and more you do it, maybe the less and less you might need, uh, especially if you're doing the same kind of negotiation over and over again. But I would say that it's an excellent rule of thumb. Most people in negotiations are winging it. Most people are going in to, quote unquote, see what they can get. Uh, and that's a mass massive mistake. Let me ask you this, because I've yet to find anyone who can disprove this thesis. In all of your years, have you ever come across an original objection? Have I've you come, ever come, I've across... come across derivatives of some yeah. really they're, like, interesting they're, they're, objections? Yeah. They're, they're derivative, but they're, they're, they can all be prepared for. Correct. Okay. Have you ever been asked or any of your clients ever been asked an original question? No. And I think this, this really lends to what you and I were chatting about previously, where people talk about unknown unknowns. 
yeah. how many unknown unknowns are there really? Right? Like there is virtually zero. The probability of you getting it is so minute. And people look at those and when they come up in people's quote unquote come up in the negotiations, they're like, there's no way we could have known this. Well, that's not really true, is it? You probably could have forecasted this. Well, there's one more question to dispel the idea that any of this can be winged. Um, And uh, have you ever had yourself or your clients be asked for an original piece of information that you couldn't have prepared for? No. Right. So there is no question, no answer, and no objection that cannot be prepared for. Everything can be rehearsed and practiced in every context. So again, let me just stress this. You don't just test it in theory. You test it with different scenarios. So positive, neutral, negative prospects, hostile prospects, prospects who are non-committal, with committees, with individuals. And you practice and practice and practice until you can do it in your sleep at three o'clock in the morning when one of us phones you up and says, what do you do in this situation? Because if you drilled like that, then you never suffer from amygdala hijack. And if you suffer from amygdala hijack, amygdala hijack, I love that. You trigger freeze, flight, or fight, or flock. And it cannot if you trigger either one of the in your in you or the prospect, you're screwed. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. I think the the main problem. I mean, I mean, the reason we you probably get hired, and the reason I keep getting hired is that most people don't prep. Right. And so we get brought into those situations because we prep for those negotiations. The one thing that I've seen is uh, universal across every single team, regardless of what side of the table you sit on, that I've ever trained is that no one has a pre existing practice of role playing mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. I come in. And it's universal. And no one has had that. And that's shocking. Because we know that role-playing is the single biggest determinant factor of your success because you can practice to get better. And again, I think this really speaks to another really important point, which is the middle management layer needs to pull their fucking finger out of their ass and stop pandering to salespeople who say, I don't like role-play. I don't give a damn. It's your bloody job. Do it and suck it up. And see it as practice. If you had any pride in your profession, then you wouldn't turn up half-assed. And again, the way I uh, train my people is this. If you're in front of someone, then calculate what their day rate is. And then you better give them at least an hour's worth of value. So if they're running a billion-dollar company, I've got to deliver 240 grand in the hour. Turning up and winging it, is as, as far as I'm concerned, tantamount to a sackable offense. How dare I agree. I agree. One of the things that we do in our training is we pair people up in what we call negotiation buddy pairs. Yeah. Part of it is like, okay, we have to set time in your calendar to actually practice with each other. So I make them set up time in their calendar. Yep. And then I say, okay, but now you have a responsibility to each other. Yep. You can't rock up to this role play having not prepared. Because now what you're not only doing is you're not just not valuing your time, you're not valuing the time of the person that you're role-playing with and practicing with. And if you don't value their time, that's the lack of respect that that shows is voluminous, right? Like the amount of lack of respect is just crazy. So don't do that. You obviously like this person. You respect this person enough to have them as your negotiation buddy come in prepared. Then what we should also do is start looking at some of the more interesting tactics that we can use like pre-mortems i know you're a fan i'm a huge fan could you define what a pre-mortem is for the audience sure maybe the the best way to define it is to think of the opposite so a a post-mortem is where a coroner looks at a dead body and tries to determine the cause of death a (laughs) pre-mortem is forecasting the cause of death so Instead of you know looking and doing a debrief, which I think is still a good idea, you would still do that. Before you go into the negotiation, you would say, okay, this negotiation is dead. In three weeks, this negotiation died. How did it die? And so you're trying to forecast the cause of death of the negotiation. And what that does, if you're really honest with yourself, 
is it helps <laughs> you to identify areas where you should have done better. And how often is it the counterparty, the buyer's fault, that the negotiation went south? I would say very rarely. I mean, if you've gotten to a point of negotiation, they want what you have, right? Like you've, you've gotten to that point where they are now negotiating the finer points of that deal. They're obviously interested. So for you to not be able to carry this over the finish line is either a function of your lack of preparation, which is most likely, or a function of an external um, effort or source of power that you were not previously aware of coming into it, right? So something external to the negotiation has happened that caused everyone to pull back. Like, for example, COVID-19, that would be the perfect example, right? You had a bunch of contracts in February 2020. Then in March, everyone said force majeure, we're out. Okay, cool, fine. There's probably not a way you could have accounted for that. So you, I can't blame you for that. But in most circumstances, it's probably you. Okay. Um, so in terms of mindset, going into the preparations for a negotiation, let's start with that. What are your rights going into a negotiation? Oh, that's an interesting question. What do you mean by what are your rights? Well, if you don't believe you have any rights, when someone rides roughshod over them, then you know, you're not going to stand up for them. But most sellers, when they go into a negotiation, because they they're not prepared and they don't understand how to set boundaries, then they fall into the category of either people-pleasing or rescuing, which is helping without boundaries or permission. Now, that's a dangerous place to be. But as you go into the negotiation, do you believe that you have the right to get paid fairly for the value you deliver? Or do you believe that you're just a commodity question. provider and you're there by the gift of the buyer and you've got to take whatever you're given? You believe you have equal business stature. Okay, so there's there's a bunch in there. I'm going to try my best to try and break it down. So. Firstly, rights. I believe that both parties have rights coming into the negotiation. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, what a lot of people don't do is they don't set expectations around those rights at the beginning of the negotiation. Quick question. When should that happen? Because in my world, I think we should be doing that right at the first point of contact. I agree with you. Right. However, I would settle for at the beginning of an actual like sit-down meeting discussion. Yeah. And then people get surprised of like, well, they, they treated me like a jackass. They treated me poorly in this negotiation. Well, did you set expectations, right? Did like, you turn up like a jackass? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Was there an understanding of mutual respect? Did, were there communication protocols that were shared and agreed to? Blah, 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 right? I think that in, a, in and of itself deals mostly with rights, but there's something interesting that you said there that I, and maybe we'll either agree or disagree on this, is the concept of fairness. If you expect someone to be fair with you, what do you mean by fair? And that mm. is a really difficult question to answer because I think for a lot of people, they have this universal idea of what they think fair is. And so they go into a negotiation saying, well, I expect to be paid fairly for what I sell. Well, your perception of fair may be very different than the counterparty's perception of what fair is. Ah, but you have to define that with the counterparty up front. So, so when, when, when I'm talking to a prospect, I'll say to them, so... Mark, tell me, if you're going to invest a pound, how much do you need to get back? And over what period of time for you to even contemplate making that investment? Okay, so if you, you tell me that you expect £1.30 back over six months, if I don't believe I can deliver that, I've got no right to sell it to you. May I challenge that? For a yeah, second? go ahead. How many salespeople have you spoken to that have done the data work that can oh, actually no, define the value that they, they drive? Should. Right. Like this is this is sort of the point that I'm making is like the vast majority of people that I work with don't even they can't determine what value it is they drive for like actual data-driven decisions. So I, I think it's such a slippery slope for them to get into a conversation around fairness because they don't even know what value they drive. 
Right, but this is down to preparation. This is down to uh, turning. I mean, how how can you turn up to negotiate when you don't even know what the hell you're selling? Oh, I agree with you. I agree with but, you. Is there any wonder? Can I flip this on its head? And yeah. what, what if you're dealing with a procurement person and you would say you say to that procurement person, "Well, we think that this value is fair," and the procurement person says, "Cool, tough shit. I don't think it is. I don't think I'm getting fair value." And now, what do you do? If you've jumped into that conversation uh, and you haven't established what value is, you are having the conversation prematurely anyway. It's your fault. You, ju- you just blew it because you but didn't. you prepare. still have to deal with that situation. Okay. So I, I think people have to be very careful about saying things like being paid fairly, which reinforces what I had said earlier around win-win, okay. because there's no way to be able to define that then. Interesting. So again, this then raises the question of um, when you use the language, whether it's internal or external use. So for example, in sales uh, qualification, BANT is a very fine platform for internal conversation because it tells you- Not to be confused with BATNA. Yeah, not to be uh, confused with BATNA. But it's a terrible platform for discovery from the customer's perspective, because they derive no value from me asking you, can you, you. can you dip your hand into your pocket to pay me money uh, so I can cover my mortgage? Yeah, I agree with you. I agree um, with you. I think BANT is a great structure internally for you to be able to have a framework to say, okay, do they have the budget? Do they have the authority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for you to ask, <laughs> for yeah. you to ask those questions that way is insane. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So mindset going into the negotiation, let's carry on with that. In terms of expectation setting, how do you Mm -hmm. advise clients to manage expectations so that you don't end up with mismatched expectations down the road? I'm guessing it starts with I I think it's, yeah, I think it starts with both parties um, and specifically yourself coming to the negotiation with all that preparation done, to your point, but also saying to the counterparty, you know, here's how we generally do things, right? And setting that, here's the precedent that we've set. I think that's very important. And here's how we generally manage the communication. This is what we think is most suitable for both parties. This is what we think delivers the most success. Do you have any objections? And asking for the objections. That is so important when you're setting those expectations, because if you just say, you know, this is where, what we're doing, and you don't give the counterparty to say what, what their input into it is, then you're never going to have those expectations properly met throughout. Okay. So this is the perennial question. I'm very categorical about this, but when is it okay to lie to a buyer? Never. Right. Okay. So how often do we find in negotiations that we lie through withholding, exaggeration, omission, underplaying, somehow sellers think that this is okay? I think we need to operate with radical transparency, but we then have to balance it with uh, when are we going to shoot ourselves in the foot? So how yeah. do you balance I, the whole The whole concept of radical transparency is something that I find it difficult to wrap my head around. I, I agree with it philosophically, but I think in practice, it becomes very dangerous because the idea is that I can be radically transparent with you and I am assuming and hoping that you're not going to use that information against me. That's a big assumption to make. So I, I think there's... There's a difference between lying and withholding leverageable information to be able to have a specific negotiation. I I like the idea of radical transparency. I think in practice, it becomes very dangerous. I can see where you're coming from. And often that's fueled by a weak or empty or inconsistent pipeline. If you had choice in the pipeline, then the pressure to withhold that information is significantly less. And the way I would tend to deal with it is I'll you, I'll stipulate it up front because I don't want it to be a deal breaker. And in the same way that you give people an opportunity to back out if they're not comfortable with the terms that you've agreed up front, I think the same thing needs to apply here. 
Yeah, Mark, I've got to be honest, I don't have any experience in the airline industry. Is that going to be a deal breaker? Just get it out of the way. Can I dig into this a little bit more? Yeah, what please. do you mean by radical transparency? Do you mean transparency on everything? I mean, if it's material to their decision, you have an obligation to inform them of it. You can time it, but you must inform them. You can't tell them something that is material to their decision that will cause them not to achieve the outcome that they intended or that would constitute mis-selling. Okay, so that I would agree with. If it's material to helping them make a good decision, I would yeah. agree with. But at what expense? Well, I if, think it's that's... if it's material to them making the decision, we have an obligation to share it with them. Would you share, for example, your current pipeline of deals? Let's flip this from the other side of the table. If I was a procurement person instead of a salesperson, because I think maybe this is a, a better example, radical would radical transparency mean that I share the competitive position of the counterparty that I'm negotiating with? Because, no, that's okay. confidential. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. So yeah. this is this is great. So it's not radical transparency on everything. It's radical transparency on the things that we deem not confidential. If I had insight into a competitor and they were a client, it would be irresponsible and wrong of me to share that with them. However, if I've researched the market and I have insights and it's quite a common issue, then sharing that under you know, Chatham House rules oh, I, is fair and reasonable. I agree um, with you there. I think but, when people hear radical transparency, though, they default to radical transparency on everything. And that no, becomes I, a I think, I think it's things like um, if uh, our product uh, is not particularly good in a specific area, which they have materially said is important to them, I have to say, I'm going to be honest with you, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, we're really very good at. R, S, and T, not so much. Is that going to be a deal? I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. I think so many salespeople, especially, I mean, if you have to negotiate, chances are it's a more important strategic sale. It's more complex and there are important consequences. Yeah. I think as a seller, our job is to facilitate the best decision for the customer now and mm -hmm. in the future. Now, it may be that, the best recommendation is to say, you know, Mark, you need to speak to my competition because okay. actually they're better suited than I am. And that does nothing but build credibility. Your boss might be a bit of an ass about it and fire you for it, but you've, you will have done the right thing. And that customer will remember that because you did not put your interest before theirs. And I think we need that when we go into negotiations, we have to be looking to ensure that their interests get met. Otherwise, the deal will come apart at some point. And we've got to be patient. And that's where I think people get it wrong because they try to transact all the time instead of advance towards the decision that both sides are going to be happy with. If I'm not making good profit and I'm not doing good work, then at some point I'm going to look around and I'm going to think, well, I'm going to replace this customer. Well, if I'm doing great work and my customer is partnering with me and they're treating me like a partner instead of a commodity provider, then I can work with them on a three-year plan and I can try and you know, I can be where they're going to be. Now, to my mind, that's the real skill in a seller negotiating. It's not just trying to negotiate a deal, but it's negotiating that long-term expansion potential. Yeah, Thoughts? no disagreement. No disagreement from me there. I think I, th I think you're bang on. I think all I think of is like when people hear these words, radical transparency, they look at it through rose-colored glasses and they think, you know, that means I need to be transparent on everything. And that's a, that's a very dangerous situation to put yourself right. in. And again, use your judgment. Don't be, turn up and be an ass, uh, but equally don't turn up and be a doormat. No right. one wants that. They've come to you for leadership, for a safe pair of hands, and to try and get help to get the job done. What they don't want is some pansy drip you know, um, that is a walkover 
because they're not going to take your advice. They'll drop you like a hot brick the moment someone comes along who's actually adding some value. And the negotiation, I think, is it should be an extension of the discovery process because it gives you a massive opportunity to really understand the individual personal motivations of the people involved, uh, the people who are going to use it, live with it, maintain it, pay for it. I had an interesting conversation with someone the other day, and they they defined sales as really only two parts, discovery and negotiation. And I thought that was interesting. Like there's no, there are no other parts to it. It's just discovery and negotiation. I thought, wow, interesting. Okay. Hmm. I think the this big part that is missed is the planning. And I think part of that is because sellers and most organizations only have a very myopic blinkered view of their role. But in this day and age, certainly if you're selling technology and almost any other moderately sophisticated solution, you're dealing with dozens and dozens of different vendors. The tech stack now in an SME is upwards of 25. In a small business, 100. Um, in an enterprise, 600. In a bank, eight to 900 apps is the norm. That's an awful lot of moving parts. And what they need from us are people who can help them make head and tail of this and make some sense of it all and try and make life easier and less complicated. Complexity doesn't mean complicated. And that, I think, is really where negotiation comes into its real, um, uh, into its art form. Because the beauty is, if you're constantly negotiating and you're constantly helping the other side gain clarity and certainty, then they're always going to want you on their side. No, I think we're aligned. I think we're aligned on that. Well, tell me this. You're, You're in the negotiation. Your counterparty's on the other side of the table. And their opening gambit is you're too expensive, which is not their opening gambit is which you're too expensive. Oh, yeah. Classic. Because it's classic. How do you prepare psychologically for that, first of all? Well, I mean, just know that it's coming. I mean, if you don't if you're not prepared for the you're too expensive conversation, I feel like you're you're not prepared at all. And secondly, also, if someone says it's not too expensive, then you're probably underpriced. So just be prepared for that conversation. And if someone says that you're too expensive, get clarity on what they mean by that. Most of the time, most people who say you're too expensive are using it as a gambit and aren't act, don't actually mean that you're too expensive, right? They're just using it as a way to pressure you to lower your prices. So if someone was to say to me, Mark, you're too expensive, I would say, thanks for letting me know. I appreciate that. But help me to understand what you mean by too expensive compared to what? And like, that's where the conversation starts to get interesting. If, okay, well, compared to whom? Well, compared to this fly-by-night consultant that I found delivering negotiation training. Okay, yeah, sure. I'm probably significantly more expensive than that person. And let's also talk about value. And so then now we can get into a conversation about value, what work they've done, what work I've done, and be able to have that conversation. But if you're not compared, prepared for the you're too expensive chat, then that's that just tells me that you have no idea what you're doing. Given that it is a gambit, what does that tell you about the other party? That they're trying to get more value. I don't hold that against someone. Like if someone says to me, you're too expensive, I'm not going to blame them for trying to get more value out of the negotiation. I'm not going to be pissed about them trying to drive down the price of what I'm doing. They're probably just doing their job. Maybe they're unprepared for it, but they're certainly just trying to do their job. I don't get upset about it. I just say, Mm -hmm. hey, let's have a conversation about it. Okay. Normally, when someone objects like that, that's not the real objection. Correct. Um, And if they have objected, in my experience, it's because of something I've said or done or failed to say or do. So when you're advising um, salespeople when they're doing their reviews, what are you pointing them at to look at, look out for uh, in terms of common clues that maybe it's them? Yeah, most of the time, if you're doing an an after action review um, of your negotiation and you're trying to determine where you maybe could do better in your future negotiations, 
I would ask the question of what were the major objections that you got throughout the conversation that were repetitive? Because if it's a one-time thing and you dealt with it fairly quickly and easily, that's not really an objection. They're just throwing that up as a red flag and you dealt with it and you moved on, right? Throw up a barrier, deal with it, move on. But if it's something that's come up consistently throughout the discussion, then that's probably something that you haven't spoken well to throughout the negotiation. So if, for example, they keep saying you're too expensive and you keep giving them the politician's response of like, well, you know, blah, 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 and they, you kind of answer a different question, that just means you haven't dealt with the objection, right? You, you haven't handled that objection well, and you haven't really made them feel more comfortable about the fact that you are expensive and that's okay. Again, another really important point for sellers to bear in mind is that when prospects do object, often what they don't need, the last thing they need is for you to ratchet up the pain or for you to remind them of the better future that you're uh, promising them. Because what they're really looking for is reassurance. Because yes. more often than not, they've, they're anticipating being blamed for it going wrong. And in that, in that case, that is the fourth of the freeze, flight, or fight responses, which is flocking. They look for other people, and this is where they go out to their network. They go out to for opinion. And in the negotiation, you should be looking for those clues that they are anticipating it not working, because if the budget is there, the authority is there to go ahead, and there seems to be a groundswell of opinion. Someone has a concern that they're going to get it in the neck when buyer's remorse sets in. So, yeah. again, really important to prepare for that. In terms of the pre-call planning and the post-call debriefing process, uh, what are you teaching your people to ensure that they're mitigating those risks? Pre-call planning is, is really just to ensure that there's internal alignment prior to going into the negotiation, right? So if you're approaching the negotiation as a team, you have a technical subject matter expert on your team, maybe you have internal counsel that comes with you, that everyone understands their roles, that everyone understands what their responsibility is, and that everyone understands what the objectives of the next discussion are. Not necessarily the entire negotiation right away, but just even so far as the next discussion. We don't need to be too expansive in the first discussion. I find that that's where a lot of mistakes take place is you try to get too much completed right away. Um, and so I would say, just as long as everyone understands what their roles and responsibilities are and what they should or should not say, who they should default to for support when certain issues come up, that's really, really important. When it comes to debriefs and, and after negotiations, it's super, super simple. It's what did we do well? What did we not do well? What do we need to do better next time? And that's really, really important. But the debrief is only powerful and it only works if you are honest. <laughs> and I find that this is where most people are really fail in their debriefs is especially when you ask the question, where did we not do well? People tend to sugarcoat it, right? Well, well, you know, I think this was really, really good. And maybe not like, listen, maybe we fucked it up, right? Like, let's be honest about yeah. that section. Maybe we really failed in that section. And I know that fail is like a swear word for a lot of people. But I think it's a really valuable word because yeah. it needs to be painful. Otherwise, you will never learn from it. What baffles me is that so much of this can be prepared for. And yet we repeatedly and willfully accept these excuses from salespeople and from management yeah. or whatever. But the reality is that there is almost nothing that cannot be prepared for. The post-call debrief should be in my book done in writing and then shared with your buddy or your manager or someone on the team and for them to debrief you verbally so that there is nowhere to hide. And there is only one rule, which is hiding failure is a sackable offense. Failing is not. Failing in role is it's universal. It's part of the human condition. Given that you can't avoid it, then exploit it. Turn it into your best teacher. Every failure should be captured and then turned into a lesson. 
because someone will. But I think this is a cultural issue, though, as well, Marcus. I think culturally, we're at a point now, and maybe I'm taking this too far into maybe the tangential sides of this conversation. But I think culturally, we we avoid the idea of failure, and we we view it as something that's you know, something that doesn't happen or shouldn't happen. I mean, kids get, for example, my kids, for example, get ribbons for participating. Like that's bullshit. You know what I mean? Like what a load of nonsense. Like the world's not going to treat you, especially not the market. Like the mark, if you have a product that you're trying to sell that the market doesn't love and that does that you will fail guaranteed, the market will decide. But for whatever reason, we try and sugarcoat it around like, well, how do we personally fail? I don't think that's a good thing. I think we need to own that. I 100% agree. And I think part of learning how to negotiate and how to sell is taking personal ownership and responsibility for your actions and the consequences and for your learning. And I think part of this is down to the language Mm. because people expect to be trained instead of taking ownership of their learning. And you're absolutely right. It is comfortable. Mm, interesting. Um, because more often than not, most businesses are fixated on their short-term quarterly target, which means yep. that they never focus on their medium-term or long-term pipe. So right. they always have a short-term pipeline problem. Most of these problems could be uh, dissolved completely if you allow your salespeople to focus on your medium-term pipe and you're patient enough to see through two quarters of bad performance, if you can do that, in six months' time, your short-term pipeline starts turning into, uh, sorry, your medium-term pipe starts turning into short-term pipe, but now you've got coverage. You've got 12 people or 20 people in that account that you know who you're intimate with, you understand the moving parts, and that's where you should be using your negotiation skills to gain access to those people. So when the real negotiation starts, you've already got the groundswell and everybody is clamoring for your value. So when procurement gives you a hard time, they're saying, cut something else. Make your competition the thing they cut. Yeah, I just don't, I, I just don't see us changing that behavior. I mean, it's, as, mm. because we're, we're a quarterly driven, especially in our capitalist structure is the way we exist right now. We are quarterly driven. Our yeah. investors expect quarterly results. And I think that that in and of itself drives the mindset and the actions. And so you've just got to deal with that in terms of the negotiation. I, well, I think uh, some of the like, this is this, I think, where like you and I might come to a disagreement about finite and infinite mindsets. I would say that if we weren't driven by quarterly results, I would probably be more in, in line with your thinking um, around infinite mindsets, but we aren't. So I've got to deal with what I have right now, and that makes my negotiations more finite. I, I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. Um, what I'm seeing, and there is a shift now, is as my generation dies off, and the sooner it happens, the better, more and more. Things like that. We need you around. This has been such a stimulating conversation. I rarely get into this kind of conversation. More and more of the next generation are starting to take over. 70% of management are now uh, millennial or Gen Z. I think 30% are Gen Z, which is really quite amazing. Now, as that shift is happening, um, more and more people are looking for purpose-led businesses. At the same time, we've got Sequoia, Tiger, Y Combinator, and dozens of other investors now telling their investees, you have to make a profit. Now, this is a real problem. Because most of these organizations for the last 12 to 14 years have been living off cheap money where you could take 18 months to three years to make a profit. And in fact, you didn't even need to because you were flipping the company in the same way that property developers come in, put a lick of paint on, tidy it up and sell it for another 100 grand. Well, that's what they were doing with companies. Now money is expensive. In the UK, interest rate rise is going to be 0.75%. Now, that's on top of the four interest rates or five interest rates I've already had on my savings. So I'm okay. But the majority of people that we sell to will have employees who are going to have to take a second job or are going to have to do without food so they can heat the house this winter. That's the reality of it. Now, I think there is so much fat in the system 
that it only takes a few to start bucking the trend. And private companies and investor-led privately held companies that are not on the market don't actually have to behave that way. So I'm hoping, and I know this is wildly naive, that that will become uh, the norm. But I think what we need to do is look for the 2 or 3% that are open to that uh, now and have, you know, they, they've got enough cash in the system to be able to weather a couple of bad quarters to get it right. Because if you can do this, you can eliminate about 95% of your downstream sales and marketing problems. It really is very simple. And I've seen it work. I've got sellers who, are, you know, they, they've focused 80% of their prospecting on the medium term. And six months later, they're coming in at 284%, 320% of quota because they have choice in the pipeline. And that takes all the pressure away because you don't want to negotiate scared. That's true. I agree with that. Never negotiate out of fear. Absolutely. Okay. Well, look, let's spend the last 10 minutes with you doing some talking because I seem to have monopolized this conversation rather terribly, for which I apologize. Let's then look at when you're getting to the final stages and your buyer suddenly pulls one out of the, you know, a rabbit out of the hat last minute. Because they do, they tend to do these Hail Marys. Again, what are the common ways that they do this? And what can uh, negotiators do to prepare so that they aren't taken by surprise? Well, there are, I mean, there are specific end of negotiation gambits that you should be prepared for. Uh, for example, nibbling is a, it's probably the most common one. I think everyone needs to be prepared for that. Can you so, define it? Um, yeah. So basically in a negotiation, you're right at the end. You can probably, as a salesperson, smell the ink on the PO at this point. It's almost <laughs> been released. You're really excited. And the buyer, the procurement person, whoever it is, says, okay, we're probably going to release the PO on a Friday. And it'll always be a Friday, by the way. Nine times out of 10, it's going to be a Friday. So it can ruin your weekend. Yeah. Friday afternoon, right? That's when we're going to get it to you. 12.30, 1 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, you get a phone call from the procurement person. And they say something like this. Hey, just ran into a last minute snag. Turns out we need X, Y, Z, whatever it is, as additional things to make this deal go. I really wanted to send you that PO, but we kind, we kind of need this last minute thing to be able to do that. And most of the time, it's going to be something that isn't going to like destroy the entire deal for you, right? So it'll be like a change in payment terms, or it'll be a drop of 1%, 2% on price, or it'll be something like that, where they just squeak out just a little bit more value out of the deal. And that's called nibbling. And because we're so excited about the negotiation closing, we're so excited about getting that PO, immediately we fold under pressure and we say, okay. Right, fine. Just to get the PO, and then the PO magically comes. Um, nine times out of ten, you can say no to that, right? Nine times out of ten, you can say, "Hey, we had agreed on these things. Is this going to be a deal killer for you?" And I would ask you that question if you're asking me for the nibble. I would ask you, "Is this going to be a deal killer for you?" And you might say, "I don't think it'll be a deal killer, right?" Because I'm calling you on it now. And then I say, yeah, unfortunately, we've, I mean, the, the stuff that we've been through, the approvals that we've been through have been so monumentous to get us to this point that I don't think we're going to be able to do that for you. Can we just proceed as we had discussed and as we had agreed to? Most of the time, the buyer is going to say, sure, okay, right? They're just looking for that little bit of extra value at the end. All these end of game gambits are fairly common. Be very prepared for the nibble. Most of the time, you're going to be safe to be able to do that. Unless, of course, that person's done a really shit job of being able to steward that deal through the uh, organization. And they actually do come with a legitimate thing that is something that they overlooked, like data security or something like that. But you'll be able to tell based on what they're asking for, right? So if it is if it is a data security thing, then maybe there's something there that you need to investigate, but you don't just give that to them right away. You slow it right back down. You understand what's being asked of you. You can see if you can actually do that thing, and then you start negotiating on that thing. Just because the 
you've agreed to a bunch of things before this request doesn't mean that everything's agreed to, by the way. There is no ink on the contract yet, right? So Mm -hmm. you can still negotiate for things. Like if you need this, then we'll need to do this in response. So you can still negotiate there. Okay. So let's have a think then. Quite often what I've seen happen is the deal gets announced and then procurement starts to negotiate because the seller's now gone public, which is a hugely uh, naive mistake uh, until the contract has been signed, sealed, and delivered. So That's a big mistake. when you get the news that you're going to get the contract, what advice do you give your clients in order to restrain their natural enthusiasm to tell the world? You have no rights to disclose anything because nothing has been agreed to. Unless the contract has been signed, you have nothing. There is no deal. Now, the business user may have said, yeah, we're good to go on this. And you can use that as leverage internally with the procurement person to be able to negotiate the better deal. But you have no rights to be able to express that. So I would say unless you have specific writing within a contract that allows you to disclose that deal, don't disclose anything because now you're liable for that conversation, right? Like that, 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 that hasn't been agreed to. Okay. So one question then that's really um, important, um, and so many sales organizations fall foul of this because of the quarterly setup, is buyers wait until the end of the quarter when they know sellers are desperate. What advice would you give to sellers to even out those peaks and troughs at the end of the quarter and and, uh, December being 60% of the year? Of the concessions, yeah. So I I mean, I think this further reinforces what you spoke about earlier in terms of pipeline. Most of the time you discount because you don't have a strong enough pipeline, right? Uh, I mean, fundamentally, that's what it's about. You're not going to discount a deal if you feel reassured that you've got three other deals that you can close that are going to healthily meet your quota without any issues whatsoever. So most of the time, I see salespeople discounting because they haven't built and managed their pipeline effectively, which goes to reinforce also what my friend John Barrows talks about, which is about filling the funnel. I think that that's his big thing, right? Just make sure that you have a good funnel. Because otherwise, you you're, going to, you're going to. You, your emotions are going to get, they're going to overcome you. They're going to overwhelm you. You're going to feel fear. You're going to feel anxiety. You're going to discount because you, you're like, well, do I discount and not lose the deal guaranteed? Or do I not discount and take a chance? Even if the probability is 0.01 that you're, you're going to lose that, you're still not going to take a chance, so you're still going to give the discount because of the emotion. So again, this is another very strong reason why you need to practice. If you practice, you've lived it beforehand. If you've lived it beforehand, then you're prepared and you have a rational pathway that you've already planned on and rehearsed and practiced. If you wing it, you're screwed. Almost every deal I've gone into where I haven't planned for, I've left 80% of the potential revenue on the table. I think the discounting at end of quarter strategy is a mistake anyway, because the idea behind it is that if we discount, we'll expedite the deal to close. Yeah, That's not true. (laughs) The, The procurement person knows that deal's not going away. Right, like he can call you, she can call you the next day after the end of the quarter. You're still going to give them the deal. Yeah. So, it's I think it's a false it's a false strategy, or a it builds up false hope for a lot of people. Like, oh, if you offer this, well, it, it well, always, what do you, it makes you pre it pre it presupposes that the money was the thing that was slowing down the thing in the, the first point. place, which is a mistake. And it's almost never the money. Right. In a real selling situation, it's almost never about the money. And so one of the really interesting things that one of my clients there came up with, she was working at SAP. They had this uh, the usual end of quarter rush. So what they came up with, which was brilliant, was, look, it's all well and good that you wait till the end of the quarter. And yes, you might get a, 
a lower deal if we're desperate. But the reality is, if you book now and you initiate halfway through the quarter, I can get you our best people. Right. When it comes to the end of the quarter, it's a lottery. You'll get whoever's on the bench. Now, given how important this investment is, do you really want to leave it to chance that you have anyone but the best people? And I love that. Then That's they made everything line. into the middle of the quarter and they discounted nothing. Peachy. That's a great line. I really like that. That's smart. Isn't it? And the other thing that I was really impressed by, Patty Hatter, who is the EVP, was the EVP at Palo Alto, came up with outcome-based pricing. Now, this is a really interesting thing, and I'd love to get your take on this because I'm trying to implement it, but I'm finding it really difficult for companies to be willing to pay the upside. So if we can find a way to identify what the outcome is, and they pay a retainer along the way, but when milestones are hit, because people don't buy training because they want training. They want the results to improve permanently. Correct. And I like the idea of me being tied to them on the basis of the outcomes, because the way I work with my clients is that, you know, I'm coaching them and helping them get these deals over the line. So we're partners in this. Now, I'd be really curious about your thoughts on whether or not you think that's uh, something that could be rolled out on a broader basis, because if Palo Alto can do it, why couldn't anyone else? I think outcome-based pricing is something that can definitely be worked in. I think the difficulty comes in negotiating what the baseline is. So what is it going to be without you there? And then you have to yeah. be able to determine what the upside is if you are there. Because that's where if you don't negotiate that up front, then your post-deal negotiation to try and claw back any value is going to yeah. be tough. Well, the way I've been positioning it is we work out what they're going, they think they're going to achieve without my help. And then I add 30%. So there's a nice big chunk of fat in there because I know that I can get triple digit growth. So anything over 30% is a win. But again, I'm, I'm just curious to see how to make this work, especially within an ecosystem environment where there are many partners and how do you ensure that people get paid for their contribution to the outcome? That's a really interesting and difficult challenge. So uh, if you know anyone who can uh, help us resolve that, I'd be very curious. I will look. I will look. <laughs> okay. So final uh, Seth question, then. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot Mark age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? Be patient. That's probably the biggest piece of advice that I would give myself at 23. I'm, I'm not a naturally patient person. It takes significant effort for me to be patient. And I have learned it through many, many mistakes. <laughs> so just learning to be patient, I think, is probably the single biggest piece of advice that I could give myself. Very good. Okay, best mistake. Best mistake I ever made was starting this business. It was a mistake. I didn't intend to start a business. It started out as a podcast and a blog, and then it turned into a business. So that was probably the best mistake I've ever made. I have to be honest, the podcast has just been incredibly beneficial. Yeah, I've learned right? so much. But the, the network, wow. Yeah, it's phenomenal. <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's just amazing. If you haven't got a podcast, start one, but uh, make it interesting for God's sake, because otherwise it's just noise. What are you struggling with at the moment? Finding a good salesperson. Yeah. I, think, I think I've found someone, I've made an offer, they've accepted, and I'm hopeful that that person is, they show all of the right attributes. But it's taken me a long, long time to find someone that I think would fit well with the business. It's been very difficult, actually. It's been probably the biggest challenge I've had in my business is finding good people, the right good people to, to fit it. Well, the rule that I always live by is you never compromise on recruitment. The moment you do, you just bought yourself a bunch of management problems. But definitely never compromise on recruitment. In the first 120 days, that's where you set them up to succeed or fail. 
but you've got to build it back from the job to be done. So um, build it back from their three-year objective. And what do they have to accomplish by three years? For that to be possible, what's the support infrastructure they need around them? For that to happen, when do you have to hire those people? When do you need budget? And you work it backwards so that this person is now, now knows what they have to generate to fund the next stage of the business's growth. And that way they see what their, their contribution is to their internal customers as well as the external ones. Really powerful. And a fabulous exercise that I learned from my friend Antonio Garrido is on their first day, invite them into your office when uh, they're settled and then slide across a piece of paper and ask them to write down all the qualities of a bad salesperson. And then you look at it and read it through and slide it back. And it's not really that complete. And then add some more, then do that two or three times. And then say, what I'd like you to do is carry that around with you. And at times, I'll just ask you what you're doing, uh, to ask you to bring out the list and see what you've done to progress in those areas to make sure that they're not happening. Oh, that's it's a, a very good idea. idea. I like that idea. Isn't it just? Because <laughs> you can do the flip side as well, which is all the great qualities, and then yeah. say that's your job description. <laughs> very nice. I really like that. Excellent. Well, I hope it's useful. Uh, Mark, how can people get hold of you? Easiest way to go to the website, negotiations.ninja, or reach out to me on LinkedIn, and please do connect. Excellent. Mark Graffan, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a very stimulating conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Tag someone who'd benefit and need some help with their negotiation. If you want to get in touch with Mark, please do. If you've got questions on this episode, then please fire them up, uh, to either one of us and we'll get back to you. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And in the blurb, there is a link to talk about coaching and training. And if you want to get involved on Tuesdays, first and third Tuesday of the month, I'm now running my Fat Club, which is the first and third Tuesday training where we take real life problems and we role play them until you actually understand why your customer choked or why you blew it and help you develop your own technique, your own system. So it's be your own selling system. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.